all the special music this week has been very, very special. That's why we call it special music. All right, very, 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 very blessed. Thank you again. I commend you for keeping that holy standard. And we're here tonight saying with the psalmist, Psalm 122.1, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. And we appreciate those testimonies that were given earlier. And I appreciate uh, Brother Dick and the moving of the Spirit in your family. It was the same way with me. I was the first one saved in generation after generation of religionists, but never had been born again. So when I was saved, September 19th, 1976, at the age of 20, halfway through my U.S. Air Force enlistment there on Okinawa, Japan, I got a great burden for my twin brother. I do have a twin brother. We often say we were womb mates. <laughs> and so uh, went into the Air Force together, but he was in Kunsan, Korea. I was in Okinawa, Japan, and I got such a burden for his soul that after I had been saved for one month, I wrote him a 13-page letter, eight and a half by 11 sheets, before emails and anything else, handwritten 13-page letter of how God had saved me, what the Lord Jesus now meant to me, and how he died for me and shed his blood and rose again for the dead for me, how he drew me, how he saved me, and that he could also be saved. And so I penned down everything a one-month-old baby believer knows. And so I prayed over that letter. I let Mark Cheney, the guy who led me to Christ, I let him read the letter. He said, oh, he said, Brother Randy, this is a great letter. Send it. We'll pray. My brother received the letter, got halfway through it, began weeping, finished the letter, and dropped to his knees and was amazingly, wonderfully saved. And his life was as wicked or more than mine. But here, here's a now this brand new believer in Korea. And so together we began witnessing to my parents, which was quite a chore. My parents had been steeped in religion for 50 years. My mother had gone to parochial school all of her growing up years. And they were staunch, staunch in religion and its system. And so for eight months, I witnessed to my parents from Okinawa, Japan to Lakeland, Florida. And we would send cassette tapes back and forth. On a 30-minute side, you talk about all that's going on, and then they would listen and flip it over and record on the other side and send it back to Okinawa, and that's how we communicated. Well, obviously, my taped messages took a drastic turn after I was saved. And now, of course, my great desire is that they could be saved, and, and so I was preaching and witnessing, and they did not like it. For eight months, it was antagonism. For eight months, it was opposition. For eight months, it was... We don't want to hear about this Jesus stuff. <laughs> Tell us about the Japanese. Tell us about the weather. Give us anything else. <laughs> that just meant more prayer and more witness. <laughs> I remember getting a tape from my dad. Isn't anything else going on over there beside Jesus in your church? <laughs> that was an easy one to answer. No. <laughs> my relationship with Jesus Christ and my service to through Maranatha Baptist Church was my life. It was all I was doing. And so more months go by, more witness goes by. I remember my dad saying one time, I'll die before I go into a Baptist church. This is how the religionist thinks. I never once said he had to go to a Baptist church. Never. I never once said you had to change religions. My emphasis is Christ. 
and him crucified and risen again. Now, we laugh about that now. And so eight months goes by, and I'm thinking that's an awful long time. My brother only took a month. I did not realize at that time that some of you have been praying for lost loved ones for years. And I thought, Lord, what's wrong? Eight months, my brother only took a month. And James 1, 5, if you lack wisdom, ask of God. And so I did. I said, Lord, I've given my parents everything I know to give them. Give me wisdom that I can say something or be a witness that they will understand and receive. And so unbeknown to myself at the time, on one of my cassettes, I said to my mother, I know you have that big family Bible, and we did, all the years growing up, some big family Bible on the coffee table. Nobody ever looked at it. It was a good luck charm. I said, I know you have it. By this time, they've moved from West Bend, Wisconsin to Lakeland, Florida. And now I knew it was in a box on a back shelf in a back room. And I said to my mother, this turned out to be the wisdom of God. I said to my mother, if you love me, would you read the Gospel of John? I said, get that Bible out of the box on the back shelf in the back room. I know right where it is, and so do you. If you love me, read the Gospel of John. And that was it. Because she thought to herself, if I love him, I know the next cassette he's going to ask me if I read it. And if I say no, he'll think that I don't love him. And this is how the religionist thinks. Well, it is the Bible. It can't hurt me. See, they'd never read the Bible in their lives, just like I'd never read it in 20 years. Can't hurt me. So I'll read it. So my mom reads the Gospel of John. Well, you know what's in there. She saw it. Eight months of witnessing, and all of that comes flooding back to her mind and heart, and she saw for herself, you must be born again. And my mother was wonderfully, dramatically, radically saved, just like I was, and her life changed so much. My dad said, what? what's happened to you? She said, I got saved. I got born again like Randy was teaching us. He said, really? When did that happen? She said, it's after I read this Gospel of John. My dad looks around and says, give me that Gospel of John. My dad read it, and he was gloriously converted. And what a hallelujah time that was. They testify that they went out into the streets of their mobile home park, because everybody in Florida lives in a mobile home park. And so they went into the streets. We're saved. We're saved. They go to all their neighbors. We're saved. And then that day when they took all the alcohol that was in the home and dumped it down the drain. You know, the Spirit of God told them to do that. They never heard preaching about that. I wish I could give a little discourse on alcohol and the believer. <laughs> How was it when I got saved? Nobody had to preach these things to me. The Spirit of God preached those things to me. This is no longer for you. Get rid of it. And I did, and my parents did. Well, there's a whole lot more to the transforming of God's grace than alcohol or cigarettes or all those things that I was delivered is all of those inner attitudes and philosophies and ways of thinking and speaking and behaving. And, and so all of that changes when you're born again. My older brother took 12 years and he made a profession of faith, followed baptism, served the Lord for about six months and then something happened. The devil got a hold of him and went, he went down the wrong 
direction again and died at age 50 of multiple problems, alcohol poisoning being the most prevalent. My grandmother, my Lutheran grandmother, wow, what a blessing. She was 70-some years old. She so loved her grandson who was a minister. <laughs> my grandson's a minister. <laughs> she was so proud of me. And so I capitalized on that. I went to see her and I said, Grandma, are you glad that I'm a minister? She said, oh, yes, I'm so proud of you. I said, I just happen to have one of my sermons here back in cassette tape days. And Would you like to hear one of my sermons? Oh, yes. And it was a scorcher. <laughs> and again, it, it, it shared, you must be born again and all the things of John. And oh, boy, I gave that. We listened to it together. And when it's finished, I said, Grandma, have you ever been born again? She says, no, I haven't. Almost 75 years in a religious system. She did not know what it was to be born again. Grandma, would you like to be born again right now? Yes, I would. And so you talk about the Spirit of God sweeping through a family. It certainly, certainly was the case. And I know that each of you who are saved, you have a testimony. And I trust the Lord is working through you to reach your family. Never give up. Never stop praying. Never stop witnessing. Never conclude, well, they're just never going to be reached. They'll just never listen. You don't know that. And so we are here today in the Gospel of John, chapter 4. For those of you just joining us, we're doing a great comparison between John chapter 3 and the man Nicodemus in John chapter 4 and this immoral woman at the well. And so the Lord places these accounts next to each other for a purpose. It's not just an arbitrary placing of the events the Lord gives us John 3 as we learn to deal with the religionist. Nicodemus was the epitome and the totality of religiosity, morality, and being someone who even was acquainted very well with the Word of God. I'm sure he spent time in prayer. I'm sure he had an exemplary life, but he'd never been born again. And he so describes so many of our neighbors, so many of our friends, people we work with, family members, Maybe good people, religious people, moral people, well-meaning people, zealous people, but they've never been born again, and they need to understand, and you're the one that God is going to use to help them understand. And the Lord Jesus showed us by his example how to work with the religionist, and now he's showing us how to work with the immoral sinner. This woman at the well is irreligious, she's immoral. She's uneducated. She's a no social outcast, as we learned last night. And so we don't have time to rehearse all the review, except to say that whether you're a religionist or you are an immoral, <laughs> wicked person, both need to be born again. That's the whole point. The Nicodemuses and the Samaritan woman at the well, they both needed the new birth. And that's the point of these two accounts next to each other. And so we are studying now the woman at the well. We began last night. We give a lot of introductory things, as I usually do, a lot of historical things. You can understand who the Samaritans are and why there was this great rift in animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. Yet the Lord said in John 4, 4, he must needs go through Samaria. He makes his way to the village of Sychar in verse 5, and he's sitting at the well, Jacob's well, in Sychar, which is near Shechem. And so Jacob's well was there. 
The Lord is sitting on the well at high noon, and here comes this Samaritan lady. She is a social outcast because she comes at noon. All the ladies in the village all come early in the morning to get their day, daily supply of water. She's not welcome by these other women. She is a social outcast, and she is uh, uncaring about them. They don't care about her. She avoids the women in the village. She comes at noon knowing no one else will be there. And the Lord Jesus begins his witness. And again, the law of apperception. Chris, my helper. The law of apperception, Chris. All right. You never teach a new truth without basing it on truth that is already known. She knows all about water. She came to the well to get water. Water's on her mind. And so the Lord opens his mouth in verse 7 and says, Give me to drink. She's astounded to find a Jew on her well. I would venture to say in all of her born days, there has never been a Jewish man sitting on the well in Sychar. And so she retorts in verse 9, Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou being a Jew askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And I gave that historical background for over 900 years. The events between the Jews and the Samaritans were festering to produce what we have here in John chapter 4, that the Jews and the Samaritans never, ever even spoke to each other. When the Lord Jesus said, give me to drink, he violated three social taboos. Number one, you never talk to a strange woman in public. Number two, a Jew does not speak to a Samaritan. And number three, when he said, give me to drink, She's saying in verse 11, you don't have a, a water cup or something to draw with. You know, for a Jewish man who is clean, Levitically, he would never ask a Samaritan to use her water cup to have a drink. That would be defiling. But the Lord Jesus Christ is God incarnate, God in the flesh. He cannot be, he cannot be defiled by anything or anyone. Furthermore, he never violates anything. <laughs> And so she's astounded to see this Jew asking her to use her water cup or her bucket for a drink. By the way, how did she know he was a Jew? Did he say, I am a Jew? No, how did she know he was a Jew? How is it that you being a Jew ask of me, a woman of Samaria, to drink? How did she know that? What do you think? His clothing. His clothing. Jews had distinctive clothing. He would have had the familiar tassels coming out from his garments. He would have had his prayer shawl around his shoulders. Jewish men in the Old Testament always covered their head. And the tribal markings would have been on that prayer shawl back in these days before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Every Jew knew what tribe he was from and wore his tribal markings on his prayer shawl. Now, the Lord Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. So was he wearing Judah markings? Or since he grew up in Galilee and was from Zebulun, did he have Zebulun markings? Which one was it? Judea. I believe him. And so she would have seen, obviously, the Jewish clothing. 
And when he opened his mouth, give me to drink, he would have been speaking with a Galilee accent. <laughs> the Galileans spoke different than the Judean Jews. How do we know that? All right, Peter warming himself of the enemy fire. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. They said, you were with him. You're Speech, your speech betrays you. You speak with a Galilean accent. It's just like the United States. You go to the southern U.S., and you're going to hear it. You go to New England, boy, are you going to hear it. Isn't that right, Judy? Pock the car. Did you talk like that? Pock the car. You never did that. All right. And everything that ends in an A is pronounced with an E-R. You live in America. All right. You know the lady Rebecca? Do you know her? <laughs> That's how they speak. Any word that ends in an A, they change it to an E-R up in New England. And so down south, you know, we're y'all going to do this, and we're fixing to do that, and we got a hankering for this, and, and we, we're eating all kinds of stuff down there. So just like in the United States, so it was in ancient Israel, different Jewish accents. And so she would have known that he was from Galilee by his speech and by her clothing. And so... She's astounded to see this Jewish man. There's never been Jews go through Samaria. And so Jesus opens his mouth, and that is the, our first point, communication. This is where we ended last night. Actually, we ended with verse 8 with that uh, parenthetical contrast between the Lord Jesus and his disciples. Do you remember the ending with that last night? All right. So the Lord Jesus and the disciples are contrasted. The Lord Jesus is concerned about this woman's soul. The disciples have no interest in her soul whatsoever. They have one thing on their mind, and that is lunch. They are belly conscious, and they're concerned about their bellies. The Lord Jesus is concerned about this woman's soul. And so the disciples, they are thinking physical, temporal, and earthly, the Lord Jesus is thinking eternal, heavenly, spiritual. And every one of you who name the name of Christ, you gravitate toward one of those sets of characteristics I just mentioned. The trouble is we are far too much like these disciples. Every instance of the disciples in chapter 4 is surrounding food. We went last night to verses 31, 32, 33. We're, again, the disciples, all they're concerned about is eating. We talked about the glories and the wonderful things about eating last night. And uh, we admit that we like to eat. Do we admit it? Jeff, do you like to eat? Yeah. yeah. Do you? Yeah, did you eat today? I'm a You're a vegan. <laughs> so you ate some vegetables? Baked beans. Baked beans. <laughs> <laughs> All right, amen. All right. <laughs> Let me come over here. <clears throat> All right, so we, <laughs> yeah, we're belly conscious to a degree. Obviously, the secret to life is keep eating. <laughs> but the symbolism there is that we are far too concerned with the things that are earthly, temporal, and, and, uh, and physical and we need to be like the Lord Jesus. We need to have the compassion he has. We need to have the eternal mindedness that he had, heavenly, spiritual. And so now we've realized the first step of any kind of witness or soul winning is to open your mouth. Communication. Give me to drink. 
He opens up a subject that she's very interested in because she's here getting water at the well. Then we move to the challenge in verse 10. The challenge. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. I could spend the whole next two days just on this verse. It is so rich. If you knew the gift of God, isn't that what soul winning is all about? Isn't that the message we have for a lost, hell-bound, dying world? Isn't that the message we have for religionists? Isn't it the message we have for the immoral woman at the well? If you only knew the gift of God, we need to let a lost world know that God offers freely, by His grace, the gift of eternal life. That's why we're always so careful to say that salvation is by faith in Christ alone. Not Christ plus our good works or Christ plus the religious system. Remember, no church died for you. Jesus died for you. A denomination didn't die for you. Jesus died for you. A baptistry or baptismal font did not die for you. Laws, traditions, rules, they did not die for you. Jesus Christ died for you. He shed his blood for you to pay the penalty of your sin, to purchase your salvation and redemption. He rose again from the dead, victorious over the grave. No one else can make that claim. Buddha is dead and in his grave. Confucius is dead and in his grave. When the Dalai Lama dies, he'll go straight to his grave. And when Muhammad died, he went to the grave and a host of other religious leaders in India and everywhere else. The Lord Jesus is unique. He is the... God, man. None of these other religious systems have God, the creator, coming in the form of man and then dying in the place of, of mankind on that cross to secure, to purchase our salvation. No other religion on this earth has a resurrected head and no other religion on the earth has that resurrected head inviting us into a personal relationship with him. I preach all over the world. I've preached to every religion you can think of. I've never had a Buddhist come to me and say, you know what, I have a personal relationship with Buddha. <laughs> I got a personal relationship with, with Muhammad or with Allah. <laughs> no, they can't say that because they don't. Only true Bible Christianity, which is separated and a unique from every other world system of thought or complex ideas or philosophy, Christ alone. And so Christ alone saves our soul. Religious systems have their place. Religion has its place, but it was never given to save your soul. Only the Lord Jesus can save your soul. And so the Word of God teaches that God offers eternal life as a gift. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, I know you could probably all quote that, for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. There'll be no bragging or boasting up in heaven because none of us get there based upon what we do. We get to heaven based upon what Christ has done for us. It is all done. It's all purchased. The work is finished. He cried on the cross. It is finished. It is sufficient. God the Father is absolutely satisfied, Isaiah 53, 11, with the accomplishment and the finished work of Christ. And now the question is, are you satisfied with it? Is the religionist satisfied with it? Well, no, he's not. 
That's why they need to be saved. And so when you start adding to the sufficiency of Christ, you insult the holy God of heaven. When you say, well, yes, the cross was important, but it's got to be your church membership and and sacraments and baptisms and confirmation. It's your good deeds. It's how good you live and treat other people. You insult him. (laughs) Insult him. When he said, I am satisfied in the finished work of Christ on the cross on your behalf, I am propitiated. It is sufficient. And that's what people need to know. Nicodemus is needed to know that. Women at the well need to know that. And these people you live near need to know that. And your family needs to know that. That God offers heaven as a gift. A gift is something that cannot be worked for or earned or deserved. You simply come by faith as a humble sinner and receive it. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. He said, if you knew the gift of God, and we want people to know the gift of God, don't we? Give me a nod. That's called feedback. All right. (laughs) Give me a nod. All right. Thank you. We want people to know that God offers freely by His grace the gift of eternal life. But they must come by faith and receive it. Now, Brother Doug... Let's just say that I loved you enough that I went to the dealer, whatever dealer, Cadillac dealer, Mercedes-Benz dealer, Buick dealer, whatever it is. Ferrari dealer, yes. (laughs) Ferrari dealer. (laughs) And I purchased a brand new, 2018s are out now this fall. I purchased for you a brand new Ferrari. And it's down at the dealer. And it's... You're going to receive that gift. You have to do two things. Number one, you have to believe I would provide that for you. In this case, I didn't. (laughs) You'd have to believe I provided that for you. Number two, you'd have to go pick it up. You'd have to go down to the Ferrari dealer and say, I understand a very loving, compassionate man purchased a new Ferrari for me. That's right. Here it is. Here's the keys. Right, it's the same way with salvation. You have to believe that God would love you enough to purchase eternal life for you. And then number two, you need to go pick it up. <laughs> you need to believe till you come to the Lord Jesus. I understand, Lord, that you purchased the gift of eternal life for me, and I'm here to pick it up. <laughs> Isn't that simple? <laughs> How simple can you get? <laughs> and so it's offered freely as a gift. He said, if you knew the gift of God, now look at this. And who it is that saith to thee, give me to drink. How could this woman ever understand? It it would be unimaginable that sitting with her on that well is the creator of the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is therein. The very one who created the molecular structure of two hydrogens and an oxygen, water. The very creator of water is sitting on that well with her. He said, if you only knew, if you only knew who I was. God, come in the flesh. And the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. John 1, 14. 1 Timothy 3, 16. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, that God 
was manifest in the flesh. And he's sitting with this woman on the well, the creator, God himself, Jesus Christ. If you only knew who I was, we must let people know who he is. He has a gift for them. It's called eternal life. That gift is based upon his own person. It's because of who he is that made what he did so important. (laughs) He must be a sinless sacrifice whose sinless blood can atone and redeem you and forgive you. He must rise again from the dead. And he must. That's why Peter preached in his great Pentecost message in Acts 2. It was not possible that death should hold him. Why? Because death is the penalty for sin. And Christ himself is not a sinner. When Christ became our sin, he could die. But when he finished paying the debt of our sin, because he himself is not inherently a sinner, death could not hold him. And he had to rise again from the dead because of who he is. And so the gift of eternal life is offered based on the person and work of Christ. And Christ is the God of creation who saves you. Jesus said in John 10, 28, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. So you come to the one who is God incarnate, who died in your place, and you receive him. Notice what he says, verse 10, If thou knewest the gift of God and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him. And he would have given thee living water. Do you realize salvation is for the asking? Have you ever asked Jesus Christ to save your soul? Now, these are the things that we use in witnessing. I'm trying to give you some source and some information to help you to be a witness. I mean, it's so simple. Have you ever asked Jesus Christ to save your soul? Uh, No, 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 I don't believe I ever have. You see, don't make it complicated. (laughs) What does it mean? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans 10, 13. Shall be saved. Not maybe, not might be, not find out someday. The moment you call on the Lord Jesus Christ to come into your life and save your poor, wretched, hell-bound soul, at that moment you're born again. And salvation is for the asking. (laughs) When you call on the name of the Lord, obviously you believe he would be listening or you're not, you wouldn't be calling. <laughs> but you're asking Christ to save your soul. And you're giving your eternal soul to Jesus Christ. Before you're saved, the devil possesses your soul. As we're born in sin, thus we choose to sin. And every one of us has broken the laws of God, so we're condemned and deserve eternal retribution. And the Bible says in 1 Timothy 2, 25, 26, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. That's what every sinner does. They oppose themselves. In meekness, instructing those that impose themselves. If peradventure, God will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. <laughs> and so you... Give your eternal soul to Jesus Christ. And you're saved. You're born again. 
and you ask him. He said, if you ask me, I will give you living water. Living water. What you have here in the well is sustaining physical life. You've got to have water to live. But here Jesus is talking now about spiritual water, about living water. So as we think about the unsaved, what does living water mean? Well, the Bible interprets itself. Did you know that? The Bible interprets itself. If you have something you don't quite understand, the Word of God somewhere will explain it. And here we have it. I want you to see it in John chapter 7, just three chapters over. Let me show you something about the living water and how Jesus used it again, this time publicly. In John 4, he's offering the living water privately to one individual. But in John 7, he's going to offer the living water to an entire group, in fact, to the nation of Israel. So look at it with me, John chapter 7, verse 2. Now, the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. All right, the Feast of Tabernacles is the final of the seven Jewish feasts. It takes place pretty much in our either late September or October. And the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booze in Hebrew, it's Sukkot. And it's a seven-day feast and then a holy convocation. But here is this week-long Feast of Tabernacles. And it is a great commemoration of the Lord Jesus who was tabernacle and wants to be with his people. And so you build a booth. I'm sure you've heard this taught. So you build a booth in your backyard and you dwell in that booth for seven days. And the millennial kingdom, by the way, all of us will keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Did you know that? Just read Zechariah chapter 14. So this should, should interest you because one day you will be keeping the Feast of Tabernacles as the fulfillment of Tabernacles is Jesus Christ coming to the earth and will be tabernacled with his people forever. And so Feast of Tabernacles. Now on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, notice with me John 7 and verse 37. In the last day, that great Day of the feast, or the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles is called that great day, the last day. We have what's called the water libation. I'm sure you've explained this to them, but let me refresh your memory. On the last day of the Feast of Sukkot, the Levitical priests make an entrance out the western, the western gate of the temple complex. And then they make their way down a road. It goes all the way downhill to the Pool of Siloam. Now, you remember, Jerusalem has been destroyed and rebuilt many, many times. That's why Jerusalem is an archaeologist's dream, because you've got to go through so many layers of civilization. So Jerusalem is destroyed, rebuilt, destroyed, rebuilt. So archaeologists had to dig deep to find this road, but they have found it. And today you can stand on the very road that the Levitical priests used from the Temple Mount all the way down to the Pool of Siloam. It was a great day of jubilation. It was a great parade. And all of the people lined the streets and music was playing. And a lot of shouting and praising as these Levitical priests with pitchers on their shoulders make their way downhill all the way to the Pool of Siloam. They fill those pitchers full of water and now make their way back uphill to the Temple Mount. 
return through that western wall area of the temple. Again, great parade, music, everybody's cheering. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And now these Levitical priests go to the altar of God in the temple. And hundreds and hundreds, as many as could fit inside the court of the temple where the altar was. And these Levitical priests would stand on the edge of the altar and many of them shoulder to shoulder, man to man, around the four squares, and they would pour their water down the altar. And so the ramp leading up to the altar became literally a river of living water. And these Levitical priests, I understand, and I've seen pictures of it, very beautiful, beautiful celebration as these, as these water jugs are, are, are released, you know, whoosh, 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 whoosh. So the water's flowing. It's like a waterfall off the edge of the temple, uh, the edge of the altar. The ramp is like a river. And as the water libation is in progress and, and water's running off of the altar like waterfalls and rivers, it was at that moment Jesus cries out in verse 37, John seven thirty-seven. As the water libation is in progress and the water's flowing, Jesus stood and he cries out, can you hear him at the top of his lungs? If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And then the definition, verse 39, but this spake he of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. You go to Acts chapter 2 and get this whole scene. But the Lord Jesus is inviting the nation of Israel as they're watching the waters flow off of the altar. He cries out and gives an invitation to the nation of Israel to receive the living water, which for an unsaved person is to receive the Spirit of God. Because once you call on the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, the Spirit of God will indwell you. And you will have a spirit baptism, and you will then be in Christ. And Christ, in the person of the Holy Spirit, will come into you. Galatians 4, 6. And because your sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts. <laughs> because the resurrected body of Christ is at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession. So obviously the resurrected physical body of Christ can't come inside of you. <laughs> but Christ does come inside of you, Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory, the confident expectation that you will one day be glorified, Christ in you. But it, Christ enters into you, Galatians 4.6, in the person of the Holy Spirit. And so he says, dear woman, I want you to ask of me and I will give you living water and you will become my well and I want to fill you with myself. You become his well. You are filled now with Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit and the living water comes within you. That happens at salvation. Has it happened to you? Only you can answer that question. I can't answer it for you. Only you know as you're sitting there listening tonight whether you are indwelt by the very person of the Holy Spirit. 
whether you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, whether you are the well of the Lord Jesus and you are filled with him. You have been saved, you've been born again, thus receiving the Holy Spirit. For those of us who are saved, living water has an application. If you go to Israel today and you ask any Israeli on the street, what is living water? He'll tell you. Living water is moving water. It's active water. It's rolling and it's rumbling. Have you ever seen a pond or a swamp with stagnation? The water's not moving. It's still and this green junk and algae are growing on the top of it and it becomes frog heaven. No movement. No movement means stagnation. So for the born-again believer, you are not to stagnate. You are not just to be sitting there doing nothing but warming a pew. Living water for the believer is moving, active, action, rumbling, rolling, as you picture a, a, a river full of rapids and that white-crested water moving in and, up, and about the, sto- the stones and, and that movement, the best Epistle I can share is 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Are you active for your Savior? Do you know what your spiritual gift is? Has it been developed? Is it plugged into this local church? Do you realize that's how God leads you to a local church? The Spirit of God is going to lead you to the local church that needs your gift. The sad truth, if I were to ask every one of you, what is your spiritual gift? Some of you would have no idea. (laughs) Everyone who's born again gets at least one spiritual gift. That gift is to be discovered. It is to be developed. And it is to be plugged into the local church. The local church is God's plan for this age. I, I argue and battle many people today who are not members of a local church and they don't value the local church and they say, well, I'm over here worshiping God in the woods. I said, no, you're not. So God doesn't have any Lone Ranger Christians. They say, well, I worship God in nature. Yeah, you worship out of, out of your old nature. New nature people realize the value that God places on what we're doing here in this place. God's plan for this age is the local church, and every born-again believer needs to be a part of a good Bible-preaching, Bible-believing local church. You cannot love Christ and not love His church. Impossible. <laughs> Furthermore, 1 John 3, 14, we know, that we've been, we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. How in the world can you tell me you love the brethren when you don't want to be with the brethren? <laughs> Where are the brethren? They're right down here in the assembly. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. So much the more as you see the day approaching. How sad to hear that so many even GRB churches in Minnesota don't even have a Sunday night service anymore. You know why not? Lack of interest. Apathy. Lukewarmness. Half-heartedness. Mediocrity. Don't even have a Sunday night service. You're supposed to meet more as Jesus Christ is coming again, not less. God designed your faith to need the local church. 
Did you hear me? God designed your faith to absolutely need what we're doing here, even tonight. Living water. Are you plugged in? Are you moving? Are you active? Are you always abounding in the work of the Lord? That's living water for the believer. Are you stagnating? Are you just still? You don't even know what your spiritual gift is. It's certainly not plugged in here. Are you active for the Lord? Are you active in your attendance? Are you active in your service? Are you active in your Bible reading and prayer? Are you active in your witnessing? Are you active in your giving? Are you active? Living water. The Lord Jesus said, I give living water in a salvation sense where you're going to become my well and I'm going to fill you with my spirit and you become then active. That which is born of the spirit is spiritual, John 3, 6. And so he goes on. Verse 11, the woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? This is Jacob's well. It's a hundred feet deep. She says, you have no water bucket. You have no water glass or cup. How are you going to get me this living water? She makes the same mistake Nicodemus makes. And Nicodemus makes the same mistake that 99% of this world makes, thinking there's something we do physically to get the new birth or to get the living water. She's still thinking physical. She's still thinking the well they're seated upon. How can you get me this living water out of this well? Jesus said to Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What is Nicodemus' answer? How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus is thinking physical, another physical birth. And this is what the religious world thinks. How often do I have to go to church, physically make my way down to a church house? How often do I have to sing? How much money do I have to give? What, what religious accolades and, and, and what religious enterprise do I have to be involved with to get to heaven? See, they're thinking, what can I do? You remember the message, John chapter 3, verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that's all it can ever be. Everything you do in yourself from the heart you were born with comes up as unclean before God. God cannot receive anything out of the heart that you were born with. Romans 8, 8, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. You must have the new birth. You must receive the living water. And it comes from Christ himself, not from a physical church building or activity that you do in your flesh. And so she again like Nicodemus and like this world, saying, "What? how do we get this living water? You don't even have a cup. And then she asks the question in verse 12, Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? So what a question. Are you greater than Jacob? How would you answer that? Yes. <laughs> yes, Jesus Christ is greater than Jacob. And again, if you knew who I was, she doesn't have a clue who this is sitting with her. But we do see how the Spirit of God works in what I call progressive revelation. As God begins working in the heart of a sinner, like this woman at the well, and revealing himself to her. Notice this progression. 
And I have these circled in my Bible. If you'd like to do that, you can certainly do so. Let me show you the progressive revelation, how she comes to this understanding of who Christ is. In verse 9, I have circled a Jew. How is it that thou being a Jew? That's all he is to her at this time. You're a Jew. And to be honest, that's all Jesus Christ is to a lot of people. In fact, in the first century, Roman emperors were just amazed that these Christians were willing to suffer, be tortured, and die for their faith. And they say, here, here, here's these, these Christians. They're willing to be fed to the lions. They're willing to be slain in coliseums. They're willing to be burned. They're willing to be drowned. They're willing to do a host of other things. For this Jew, this dead Jew, who they say is alive. And that's all he was to the Roman Empire, to the emperors. And that's all he is to some people today. Why are you all getting excited about a Jew? <laughs> Now notice she progresses in verse, in verse 15. Verse 15, the woman saith unto him, hmm? 11. The woman saith unto him, sir. But verse 15 also says, sir. So 11 or 15. <laughs> <laughs> But the wife wants 11. <laughs> happy wife, happy life. You know that, right? Uh, no, serious. I, I do want to say 11, but 15 is also notable. She says in verse 11, the woman saith unto him, Sir. Again, verse 15. The woman saith unto him, Sir. See, that's a notch up. Sir is a respectable title. When you are knighted in the country of England, what is your new title? Sir. Sir Lancelot. <laughs> Sir. It's notable. It's respectable. So he's not just a Jew anymore. Now he's a sir. And to people today, many people give respect to Jesus Christ. They don't understand that he's God in the flesh. They've never believed on him to the saving of their soul, but they're respectable to him. Even religious crowd, even other world religions, do you realize the Islamic people respect Jesus? <laughs> Hindus respect Jesus. He's a sir, but they would never believe on him as deity is the Son of God who died in their place, shed his blood and rose again with the power to save their soul, but he is a sir. <laughs> and then she moves on in her progression. She moves on to verse... I was having my wife help me here. Uh, verse 19. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Oh, he's moving up, isn't he? <laughs> A Jew, a sir, now he's a prophet. And there are many people today that give that title to Jesus. The Islamic people claim that Jesus is a prophet. But he's a prophet equal with Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. And since Muhammad is the subsequent prophet, Muhammad comes along about 500 A.D. And they say, well, Muhammad is the last great prophet, so he is the authoritative one. But they do ascribe 
Christ as a prophet, and so do many other people. But that's all he is to them. He must be more than a prophet. And then she comes to this place in verse 25. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh. (laughs) Mashiach, the Christ, the anointed of God, the prophesied one. And all those Old Testament prophecies about who Messiah is and what he would do when he comes I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. And when he is come, he will tell us all things. Now watch this. Verse 26, Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am. I am the Messiah. This is the clearest revelation of Christ to someone on the earth up to this point. Jesus Christ reveals himself to this woman because he knows she has a heart to understand. You remember the religious leaders who said to Jesus, Are you the Messiah? Tell us plainly. And he said, Thou sayest. You see, the Lord does not reveal himself to people that really don't want to know him. All the religious leaders was wanting Jesus to say he was the Messiah so they could condemn him as a false Christ. They didn't believe he was the Christ. And so the Lord reveals himself to people that want to know him. And there are many, many people who are even religious, but they don't really want to know him. They don't really want to know him because that would mean commitment, that would mean changed lives, that would mean sacrifice, it might even mean martyrdom. (laughs) They don't want to know him. You ask your average religious person sitting in a church building in Duluth area on a Sunday morning. They don't want to know him. They don't want him to reveal himself to them. Because that would mean far more than the little facade they give him on Sunday mornings. Do you really want to know him? If you really want to know Christ, he'll reveal himself to you. That's how we know this woman is going to be genuinely converted. It's a lot in this chapter. I could preach two weeks solid on this one chapter. (laughs) Christ sees in her heart a desire to really want to know the Messiah and who he is. And so he gives this clearest revelation of himself up to this point. (laughs) Later on at his trial, the Lord will under oath, as the high priest and the Sanhedrin will say to Jesus on trial, and put him under oath, are you the Messiah? And only when he's put under oath, he says, I am. And you will see the Son of God ascending and descending with the angels. He's committed blasphemy, and the high priest rents his garment. Was that legal? No. The high priest is never to rent his garment. But Caiaphas rents his garment, breaking the laws of God. He's committed blasphemy, and he deserves to die. But the Lord reveals himself to those who really want to know him. You remember when the storm was upon the Sea of Galilee, and the apostles are there, they're rowing their heads off and not getting anywhere because the wind was so contrary. And here comes the Lord Jesus walking on the water. And did you catch that where it says he made as though he would go by them? 
but they called for him. Did you detect that in Luke 24 when the two are walking on the road to Emmaus, walking home, and Jesus joins them and probably gave the greatest sermon that was ever preached, and I'd love to have known what he told them. He began at the Old Testament, all the prophets. He gave them every Old Testament scripture about himself. What a message. And he made as though he would go on. But they begged him, come in, break bread with us. See, Jesus only goes where he's wanted. And the sad truth is there are even born-again people who don't want him. Don't get too close to me now. I'm not ready for that kind of commitment, that kind of sacrifice, that kind of discipleship. Don't get too close. See, you'd never say that with your lips, but that's how many of you live. Do you want him? Do you really want to know him? And do you really want to know him and all that's involved in really knowing him? This is the problem in American Christianity. Jesus Christ is not a living reality. And we only give so much. We give him the just in case it's all real Christianity. Just in case this is all real just in case Jesus really did die for me, shed his blood and rise again, just in case he really did save my soul, I'll come out Sunday morning. Don't look for me Sunday night or Wednesday night. He's not that real. <laughs> now, just in case this is all real, I'll put some token offering in the offering plate on Sunday. I'm not going to give tithes and offerings go way beyond the tithe. I'm not really going to sacrifice for the cause of Christ and the propagation of the gospel. He's not that real. Just in case all of this is real, I'm going to live on the borderline with the world and just separate just enough so people think I'm saved. But just in case he isn't real, there's a lot of worldly things I enjoy. Come on! Who are you fooling? When is Jesus Christ going to become a living reality in your life? When are you going to start living the way you say you believe? This is not a just in case it's all real. It's absolute reality. And if Jesus Christ is not absolute reality, and this word of God is not absolutely the word of God, then I'm going back in the world and get everything I can get. Because if that's all there is, I'm going to get it all. If Jesus Christ is not absolute reality, if the word of God is not absolute truth, what are we doing here? Why do so many who claim to know him live so distant, so half-hearted, so mediocre, so status quo, go with the flow? Where's the passion for your Christ? Who's eaten up with his cause? Who's consecrated and dedicated and separated and committed and sacrificed? Who, where are they? Somebody show me. It's a great great problem in American Christianity. I wish you could travel to me to the countries I go to and see real Christianity in action. And I go to these countries representing American Christianity, and forgive me, I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed when I see the level of their pe these people's commitment, and they have nothing. And I see our materialism and I see our lukewarmness, our Laodicean age kind of living. And we see this half-hearted, got to beg people to come out to church. 
got to beg people to give sacrifice. Something's not right. How many of you are soul winners? How many of you witness every day you take opportunities to share with lost people the, the gospel? How many people have you led to Christ this year? How many did you lead last year? Who are you fooling? <laughs> I hate to be so hard. But it amazes me how Christians sit in churches like this, born-again people, and they really don't want to know Jesus. <laughs> Because of the level of commitment, discipleship, and sacrifice that would mean. And to be honest, we're just not willing to give the Lord that kind of level of commitment. And so we just go on with our little status quo, go with the flow, convenient Christianity. And what it comes down to is I'll serve God the way I want to serve him, thank you. (laughs) And it's true. And so Jesus Christ reveals himself to this woman because he knows she really wants to know him. Clearest revelation of his identity that you'll find up to the point where he's on trial. He didn't do that for everybody. (laughs) But he did it for her because she had a heart to know who Messiah really is. And so this progression, this progression. And so Jesus says to her, Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. Dear, dear lady, I'm not talking about this physical H2O in the well. That's what she's thinking. You don't even have a water cup. How can you get me this living water out of this well? Dear lady, it's not in this well. (laughs) You drink this water. You're going to thirst again. In fact, the the verb tense in verse 13, whosoever drinketh of this water is present tense in the Greek. Whoever continuously drinks of this water, and that's what you have to do with water. You must, you must drink water every single day. Your tissues are crying out for water. (laughs) You've got to have it. And you have to continuously have physical water. And that's what Jesus says. Whosoever drinks, verb tense, present tense, whoever continuously drinks of this water shall thirst again. And it's true. It's biological phenomena. But, verse 14, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. The word drinketh in verse 14 is what we call in the Greek the aorist tense. And I don't expect you to be Greek scholars and you don't have to know Greek to interpret scripture, you can spend a lifetime obeying the English. Did you know that? <laughs> you don't have to learn Greek. There's enough English here to obey. <laughs> but knowing the tenses is important to interpretation. So present tense denotes continuous action, what we call linear. Aorist tense is what we call punctiliar. It's a one-time event. Aorist tense, remember, one-time event. Present tense, if you drink this water, you'll have to keep drinking it over and over again. But whosoever drinketh, airs tense, once. All you need is one drink of living water and you'll be set for eternity. So this business of saved loss, saved loss in the charismatic world is a bunk. It's not true. You have one drink of living water. And you have eternal life. And eternal life, you know what it is? 
It's eternal life. <laughs> Titus 1, 2, in hope and confident expectation of eternal life, which God promised before the world began. If God gave you eternal life and somewhere along the way took it away from you, then, then it was never eternal. And God becomes a liar. <laughs> That's what it's saying. Do you realize how many people out here are calling God a liar? <laughs> Well, he said, he said he gave me eternal life, but it really wasn't eternal because if I sin, I can lose it. <laughs> then you don't have eternal life. You may have probationary life. <laughs> you go on this lifelong probation. You go on this lifelong guilt trip. You go on a lifelong fear that if I think something, say something, do something, I'm going to lose it. <laughs> That's not what you have here in John 4. Jesus is one drink. Just one. And you will have eternal life and you will live forever. So help your charismatic friends. Help those that you know teach that you can lose your salvation. Give them some help. If you drink this water, you'll thirst again. I'll never forget. Wow, look at that clock. I had no clue. Uh, you never. <laughs> you don't look. I'll look. You don't have to look. All right. <laughs> Why? I was in Jamaica in the West Indies, been there many times. Our car broke down. Jamaican pastor says, I'll go into town and get some help. You stay here with the vehicle. I'm sitting on the vehicle on the hood, which they call the bonnet. I got a baseball cap, says USA, a man by the name of Magnus James, probably in his 40s, walks by the car, notices my USA ball cap, starts a conversation. All witness begins with communication, and it goes to a challenge, and then the conviction. But here he says, oh, you're, are you from America? He said, yes, I am. Starts asking me some questions about America. We're having conversation. Then he tells me, I'm, I'm walking to town. It was about a mile. I'm walking to town to get some rum. That's fermented sugar cane. It's alcohol. I'm going to, the, I'm going to town to get some rum. And I tell you, it came out of me. Like lightning. I wasn't even thinking, but the Spirit of God got a hold of me. I said, if you drink that rum, you'll thirst again. He said, what? What are you talking about? I said, let me show you. And I go to John chapter 4, and I gave him this passage. You drink that rum, you'll thirst again. But Jesus Christ has living water for you, Magnus. <laughs> I was able to lead him to Christ right there. He said, I'm not going to the town. I'm going to go home. I said, that's right. Whoso drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And the woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water. And thus is the response that we would like to see from somebody here this week. Lord, give me that living water. I want eternal life. I want you. As a believer, do you want him? As a believer, are you living water tonight? Or are you a stagnant pool? No movement. You've got to answer that question. Well, I love you and you love me, right? So I can say what needs to be said and you'll appreciate it. Well, let's pray together. Lord, tonight we conclude with this. Tomorrow night we come to the conviction and the conversion. Last night, the communication. Tonight, the challenge. Speak to our hearts. Are we genuine, blood-bought, born-again Christians? Are we your well? Are we filled with the Spirit of God, the living water? And thus, 
is the Spirit producing activity, spiritual movement, rapids, rolling, cascading water? Are we active? Are we moving? Is Jesus Christ a living reality in our lives? And he so moves us. May we want you tonight. May we want you for our Savior and Lord, if that's the need, and even as believers. Do we really want you? Do we really live in the reality of Christ? Is this some game or is it reality? That's the question. So help us in these things. Is there anyone tonight, you've heard the message, you're listening to this invitation, and you say, I'm not sure I've ever received the living water. I'm really not sure that I'm filled with the Spirit of God tonight. I need to be saved. I need to be born again. I'd be willing to talk with you or someone else after the service tonight. You'd be willing to lift your hand right now and say, I need to be born again. I need the living water. Right now, I lift my hand, which is an expression of my heart and the Spirit of God working in my heart. I'd like somebody to take the Bible and show me how to be born again, how to receive Christ. I believe that Jesus died in my place and shed his blood and rose again. I believe he loved me enough to do that for me. And now I'm here to pick it up. <laughs> I'm here saying, Lord, I know you purchased that for me and I'm here to receive it. Have you ever asked Jesus Christ for the living water? Have you asked him to save your soul? If not, would you be willing to do so? My Christian friend, has God spoken to your heart tonight? And I pray he has. I pray that revival, refreshing, rejuvenating, recalibrating is going on in your soul. And maybe tonight it was a bit hard, it was a bit fiery, but how we need it. Is there a believer? And I say, I have not been active. I'm not living water in my spiritual life, but I want to be. And that's my rededication decision tonight. I want to start living the way I say I believe I want to start living the way the New Testament teaches, not just the way I want to live, picking and choosing the commands I want to obey. <laughs> I've not been this living water. I've not really wanted Jesus. It's a hard, hard decision. It would take great humility and, and accountability and honesty to right now raise your hand and say, you were talking about me and I know it, and I want to rededicate my life to Christ tonight. I want you to pray for me. Pastor Randy, I believe that message was for me. I believe God spoke to my heart. Would you just lift a hand, and we'll pray, and you can just leave here, I trust, with true revival and refreshing. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate that. Anyone else before I pray? Thank you. Appreciate that. Anyone else? I know, I know God spoke to my heart tonight. I know what he's talking about. Hit me. So, Father, we commit these who've lifted their hands. I appreciate their humility, their honesty, their accountability. Your word says that you resist the proud, but you give your grace to the humble. This message and a raising of a hand of rededication would take great humility we thank you for that so you can work with these people. So bless them and help them to apply with life-changing understanding what they've heard tonight from John 4. I pray that they would leave here even different than the way they came in as believers. 
And I pray, Lord, that you would help them to really become living water, to really want you. And the more we want you, the more you will reveal yourself to us. And you want to manifest yourself to us. And that's when this all becomes so real, when you manifest yourself and reveal yourself to us. And we know it's you. And there may be some who are believers who live so far off, they really don't know that intimacy with you. And this is a thing we do. It's a religious duty. We come here. We do our thing. We do just enough to say we're saved. But they really don't know you. As Paul said, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection. May it be so tonight with these who've lifted their hands and with all of us. So bless us, encourage us, challenge us. Thank you, Lord, in Christ's name, amen. Pastor.